busted. All right, here we are back at it again. Part two, this time, all things tennis related. And I have a list of questions that you guys have submitted to me via DM or email. And I'm super excited to get into the nitty gritty and ask them because they're actually some very interesting tennis related questions. They required me to think a little um, post-recording, no, pre-recording is what, is what I should say. But I didn't want to do too much thinking just because I wanted it to kind of be off the cuff so you guys can see, you know, my 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 brain working and hear my brain working as I get my answers together. And when I say see my brain working, I'm talking to the people watching on Instagram Live. So, hey, everybody that's watching on Instagram Live. Hi, Nate. Hi. Hi, all. Thank you, Angie. The hat really brightens my face. Thanks. I appreciate it. This is actually a prototype. That's what I'm calling it because I don't love it. There's some there's some things that I wish I could um, uh, improve upon when it comes to my logo and my font. But um, there's also a filter on this Instagram live. So it's it's actually yellow in this little purple patch right here is actually a button but i want to improve upon all that and get my logo better so that i can actually start selling merch probably towards the beginning of next year so thank you i really enjoy this hat <laughs> it's i feel like it's my little my little protege baby thing that is just me you know so how does one become part of the tennis clubhouse that you talk about often dedrick send me a dm and i will actually instagram um you a link to the clubhouse room you actually have to download an app called clubhouse and we'd love to have you um we just basically talk about um tennis topics and we often talk about tennis live as it's happening so if there's a match going on and we want to add our two cents to it or just kind of talk through it and have a good old family style discussion um then clubhouse is a great way to do that and it's a great way to interact with me and other tennis fans that are super excited about where the sport is going so that is how you can join clubhouse but yeah dm me and i'll send you a direct link and kind of walk you through the process because it's not it's not hard but you kind of have to have somebody guide you a little bit <laughs> okay so Let's do our first question via DM. Let's do that. Let's get right into it. Okay, so username It's Me Benny D sent this question via DM and he said, If you could have a one on one with anyone in tennis, who would it be? A one on one with anyone in tennis and who would it be? So if you follow me and you know me, and you interact with me on Twitter, then the obvious answer here is probably a answer of Serena Williams and I'm not going to go obvious here even though I would love a one-on-one -on -one session and I'm assuming I'm assuming you mean I'm, I'm going to assume here and put myself in the in the mind frame of like having a one-on-one -on -one session with them on the courts on the tennis court and I'm not going to choose Serena because I feel like me and Serena would have fun doing other things outside of tennis. Tennis would be like where we would come back and have fun, but we would have fun doing other stuff. Um, but if I really wanted to get into the mind of somebody who had, in my opinion, a really interesting tennis IQ and a good tennis brain, I actually would choose Rafael Nadal because he's a lefty and so am I. And I would just want to figure out how in the world he keeps such incredible spin on the ball and has kept his physicality of 
like the way he produces his shots and the way he just goes about his tennis for so long. I would just want to be if I couldn't be a fly on the wall and I could actually be in the practice session, I would love to just figure out how he keeps his intensity level up throughout three, four, five hour matches and how he produces such top spin on his forehand. And I just think he is in general produces a lot of great spin and it's not just string related. It's not just racket related. It's something in his mechanics that makes him or maybe, maybe, maybe more intensity meets the mechanics. It's a mixture of all of those things, but I would want to have a one-on-one, a one-on-one, excuse me, with Rafa Nadal, just because it would be fun. I feel like his work ethic, if he could just dial it back some for somebody that is on my level and kind of teach me some, some tricks of his and some, um, some just really cool things that he might not have shared with everybody else, then I would really enjoy that. I feel like that would be kind of priceless, especially if we did it on clay because clay is not my strong suit. I've only played twice in my life on clay and it was green clay at that. So I need some pointers on how to construct points and have a legitimate clay court. If I ever get the chance to play on red clay, a red clay court game. So I need to have a one-on-one with Rafa Nadal. That would be interesting. Um, I see some questions coming in via Instagram Live, and I'm going to get to those, I promise. Um, I'm just going to answer a couple of more of the ones that were sent to me prior via DM, and then I'm going to click on that little question box and answer some of you guys' questions. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Miguel. Miguel, I did get your questions that you sent via IG. I have them saved right here, buddy. Don't worry. (laughs) You are one of the ones that were very active in asking questions, and I truly, truly appreciate that. So shout out to you. Hi, Linnell. Thank you guys for coming in and enjoying a Monday night with me. Hey, Shaq, I see you. Hey, Nate. Hey, Miguel. Oh, there's two Miguels in here. (laughs) Look at that. Okay. Let's get to a second question that was asked. Okay, cool. So Dubdos, shout out to Dubdos. He asked, if you were to add a fifth slam to the season, what tournament would you pick? I, okay, so here's my thought process on this. Here's my thought process. I really would love to see a fifth slam be played indoors. I don't necessarily, well, I know why. I was going to say I don't know why. I like indoor tennis. I think that there is a smooth element about it, especially because you take out natural elements and you kind of just get to see who who thrives in that specific arena. And there's a, a hard, excuse me, there's a grand slam for every other surface or every other kind of arena in tennis. Like there's two hard court majors, a grass court major and a clay court major, but no indoor major. The closest thing we usually have is like the year ending championships at the end of the season. And that is the closest thing we have to like an indoor slam. But I would want to see a 128 player draw played in indoors. Um, so what I would do is so since there's already two grand slams that are played in Europe, Wimbledon's in London and the French opens in Paris. And it's not really a large secret that I don't, put Roland Garros at the top of my list. (laughs) I probably would move the clay court tournament somewhere in South America, maybe like Rio, because 
South America has a bunch of clay court tournaments. I would just make one of those. I would make one of those a Grand Slam. Um, Rio, somewhere in Brazil. I don't know. I can't think of the countries on top of my head, but I would make one of those a, a clay court Grand Slam. And then obviously keep Wimbledon. I love Wimbledon. Um, and then I would probably find somewhere in Europe to host a indoor Grand Slam and probably make it towards the end of the season. Just because I feel like after the U.S. Open, there is still like there's most of September, October and November left. So if we really wanted to like end the season with a bang, why not put a fifth Grand Slam on the schedule when there's room for it? And it could be an indoor Grand Slam when all those tournaments are happening in um, in Europe. Actually, boom, it just came to my head. There's the Paris Masters indoors, which is always a huge tournament in Paris. All we have to do is move Roland Garros to another continent preferably South America, maybe Africa if they want to be fancy. <laughs> oh, Linnell just, Linnell just shot down my idea. Get rid of Paris Masters. See, I don't mind the Paris Masters, but what I would want to do to improve it is make it a Grand Slam, add the women, so it's a, a women's draw and a men's draw, and women's doubles, men's doubles, mixed doubles, and just make it a draw of 128 like we do at a Grand Slam, but it's going to be indoors. And then you still have, you can still appease the Paris crowd. This is all in my in my brain. This is all like, uh, if I had it my way scenario, I doubt any of this happens anytime soon, but it would be nice if we got a fifth Grand Slam indoors because why not? Like, I feel like players that maybe don't have a Grand Slam on their resume would probably have at least one or maybe like a Grand Slam semifinal or a final appearance, something like that. It should be looked into. If I was ever put into a position of power, I would see how we could get a fifth Grand Slam somewhere on the calendar and make it indoors. So that's the hill I'm going to die on today. <laughs> okay, let's answer one of you guys' questions here. So Momentally Conscious asked, oh, this is a good one. This is a really good one. Momentally Conscious asked, why isn't Sophia Kennan improving? I think Sophia Kennan, and I think it's safe to say this now at this point in the, in the season in September, she's going through her sophomore slump. Like there has been nothing really positive or forward momentum going her way this season. And I think that happens to a player when you kind of have two great seasons back to back. Tennis is all about ebbs and flows, if you have not noticed. And I feel like she's going through her ebb right now. But it's interesting to me that her ebb is so I don't I'm trying to think of a word here. Her ebb, like her her I don't want to say spiral, but it kind of is a spiral. Um, as far as results. Her results have been so poor, and I didn't think that she would be that kind of sophomore slump esque player I, I did think she was eventually going to have a sophomore slump because it's hard to be like a, a 20 21 year old and have all the success she had especially winning the Australian Open getting to the French Open final and then follow that back up because now you're transitioning from being the chaser of the titles to now the girls ranked below you are like you're the chasee and they're trying to come up and get a top five win to kind of you know 
jump off their careers and motivate their careers and get people to look at them. So it that that transition is always tough. And I thought, of course, she was going to have to deal with it and probably struggle. But I thought she would probably get to. I don't know, more fourth rounds, more quarterfinals, maybe a finals appearance at a smaller tournament, but it hasn't been much of any of that. Like she has not been on the radar much at all. Honestly, I don't really remember her results after Wimbledon. Either there was a match in the Grand Slam. I I have to fact check this. I'm not going to do it right now. So if you're listening to this via podcast and you're like, Miles, you're wrong, then just let me be wrong. Sometimes things happen. <laughs> but I, it was either a match at the French Open or Wimbledon where she lost in like 45 minutes and had upwards of 40 errors, 40 unforced errors. And that is interesting and wild to me because when you look at her game her game is built so much around consistency and for her to have that amount of unforced errors in a match that went by like that like it was super quick something tells me that there is something going on like internally she doesn't feel her game the same way and she just probably needs to put this season behind her and try again next season she did just split up with her dad as her coach which I think which I think is a good idea I think she's around the 22 23 age range and that's usually when as normal adults or young adults you want to try to branch out on your own and I used this adage before I think in an interview I was doing the whole like you have to like I think even birds push their babies out of the nest to fly. Um, I feel like in tennis, especially for some reason in the daughter, dad, coach, um, that whole format, they hold on to it a little longer than it's than they're supposed to. I get it up until a certain point because obviously your parents have sacrificed a lot to get you get you to where you are. They obviously are invested, so it's hard to just detach. But I do think a healthy detachment is going to be better for you in the long run. Usually, like nine times out of ten, a healthy detachment at a certain level from your parents usually yields good dividends. And I think she's just going through that process right now so hopefully we see her in the top of the sport or at least close to it like I think she's a she's a consistent top 20 top 15 player I don't see why she shouldn't be consistently getting seated at grand slams and we'll see what happens next season so that's the answer for why isn't Sophia Kennan improving we'll we'll see we'll, we'll see what happens next season she has a very solid base game it's just all about Upstairs, I think, with her right now, because it's not she. She's technically pretty sound. Obviously, if you look at her serve, she does that whole serve toss, but she doesn't look at the ball thing. But outside of that, she's pretty solid. If you guys have any questions um, on Instagram while we are chatting it up, please feel free to send them in the little question icon thing. Hey, Tobias. Hey, Sasha. Hey, Paul, how you guys doing? Happy Monday. Okay, let's get back to some questions that were sent in via DM. This question comes again from Dubdose, and he asks, best dressed men's and women's players on the court, their game outfits. I have an answer for the women. The women's pretty obvious. It's Serena. Serena always looks the most killer on the court she like she has a way of making 
statements and we like if you're if you're a fan there are so many moments you can go you can literally i don't know if you guys have ever seen on youtube where vogue asks people to come through and look at like a lookbook of red carpet looks and stuff like that throughout their career serena could have that just on the tennis court she has moments where you're just like only she could pull that off i mean from the denim skirt and the leather boot look to the bodysuit, the cat suit, and she's had different variations of those. She's had a cat suit 1.0 in 2002. She's had the 2.0 kind of sorta like a, a ode to Wakanda at the French Open in 2018 and she kind of got in trouble for it when she shouldn't have gotten in trouble for it. And then she also had a bodysuit like almost 3.0 at the 2019 US Open that should have got off, got us a trophy, but we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about her fashion. So yes, Serena is my best dressed woman. And ooh, like second second favorite, you guys can shoot me down if you want to, Sharapova. I enjoyed Sharapova's dresses. I think they always looked pretty um, casually athletic and cute on her she just always looked pretty clean i didn't have a problem with her dresses i'll say that i didn't have a problem with it so to the men i think it's a easy for me it's easy to go with rafa especially lately rafa has been experimenting with colors and like the cut and um like just the lay of his clothes lately especially this season in 2020 when he hit us with the pink shorts the pink hot shorts and he hit us with like some hot green shorts for a little bit when he was coming back in the summer when he played in dc he looks good like when he has an outfit on especially these days i'm like okay so how would i wear that it probably it wouldn't look the same way on me that's for sure but he makes it look good he looks athletic he looks sharp he looks clean nike does a good job with their best players i'm trying i was trying to find somebody that's not nike here's a here's a long shot um Annette Kontavit from Estonia. She wears Lacoste and I want to say she might be the highest ranked woman right now sponsored by Lacoste. I may be wrong in that, but I just watched her match today in Ostrava and she looks cute. She often looks cute. Like nothing about Lacoste is Lacoste is, is it Lacoste is? Whatever. Nothing about Lacoste like yells super innovative but it is clean and it's a very easy aesthetic um tennis wise to kind of get so i don't mind uh lacoste on the women's side even though they kind of recycle some stuff it's usually pretty clean cute and out there on the men's side too i'm not a huge polo wearer myself when i play tennis but the men's polos Djokovic looked good at the U.S. Open this year, and so did Medvedev. Even though Medvedev could use either a size down. Yeah, he could use a size down because <laughs> his shirts just look so big on him. But we're talking about best dress, so that might fall under worst dress. But I would say Serena, Rafa, Annette Contevit, the girls that wear Lacoste, some of the guys that wear Lacoste. It's always pretty clean, athletic apparel that just looks good on tennis court. Adidas hasn't been my favorite lately. They haven't been bad, but they haven't done anything where I'm just like, ooh, I want to go out and like do some research on how to get that myself. You know, Adidas has nicer shoes, I believe. 
than Nike sometimes. Like they're more competitive in the tennis game when it comes to shoe wear, but apparel, mm, it hasn't been anything for me to write home about lately. Just my personal opinion. Let's see. Hey, Jahan. Hey, Clinton. Okay, let's move on to another question that was sent in via DM. This is a really good one. So, Tennis Brother 2 asked, how did you fall in love with tennis? Smile emoji. So, I don't know if I've, I think I've, um, I think I've like alluded to this on the podcast, but I don't know if I've, I, I know I haven't been asked this question and just flat out gave the story. So, I'll use this opportunity to give the story now. So, the year was 2006. Well, let me back up a little bit. Parts of me remember the Venus versus Davenport match at Wimbledon in 2005 because I was dealing with a knee injury the summer of 2005, 2006. It's cloudy, y'all. It's cloudy. But I do remember some certain things for sure. But I know I was on a couch for most of the summer dealing with a, a fractured growth plate in my knee. And I think that was my very first introduction to tennis on the television and I kind of bookmarked it. You know how like you see something kind of like we do with Netflix and you see something like, oh, that might be interesting. So I bookmarked tennis that summer and I think that was like 2005 and I was like, mm, I need to get into that because at that point I was mostly a football, basketball, baseball kind of guy only and tennis was nowhere on my radar. I was like 12 or 13 and nobody had really introduced me to the sport. In comes 2006, the U.S. Open Summer Series, and I remember literally what I was, well, I don't remember what I was wearing, but I remember where I was sitting. We don't have that sofa anymore. Thank, I mean, it would be kind of weird to have the same sofa from 2006 at my house. <laughs> but I remember sitting in the sofa, and it was a Serena Williams versus Yelena Yankovic match at the 2006 Los Angeles Women's Tournament in the lead-up to the U.S. Open. And something about that match clicked. Serena ended up losing and Yankovic went on to the final. And I think she lost to Alina Dementieva. I'm pretty sure she lost to Dementieva that year. But something clicked. It, it was it was her outfit. It was her hair. It was the swag. She, she looked relatable. Like, I was like, I know women that look like this in my area. And she just out here playing tennis, like swinging a racket. And like the way they were talking about her, I didn't really know any of her stats. It was just something that drew me in at that moment. And I watched a majority of the 2006 U.S. Open. I remember Serena, she beat Ani Ivanovic and then she played a really, really great match or great-ish against Moresmo. She ended up losing that match. And we know 2006 Serena wasn't necessarily peak Serena, but it was something in that moment that got me interested in tennis and I fell in love. And then the next Grand Slam was obviously the 2007 Australian Open. And that was the first Grand Slam that I watched from beginning to end. Serena ended up winning it and that cemented it for me. From that point on, I was like on the WTA's website, figuring out the men that I liked on tour. And it's just been uphill from there. And another thing is, <laughs> this is funny. I used to record matches on VHS tapes and I still, you guys can't see them because they're kind of behind this little, um, whatever you call this thing that I'm using as a background. But, um, I, I still have the VHS tapings of like, the 2007 matches, 2008, 2009, I think I have some 2010, but at that point, 2010-ish is when we 
were solidly in the DVD era. And I have some DVDs of tennis matches too. So that's when I was just like, I was hooked. When when you start recording stuff just to have it and watch it for a rainy day, you're hooked. So yeah, that's how I fell in love with tennis. It was TV for me that, that started the interest. And then I got into playing tennis when I was 13 or 14. Whenever you start high school, because we had a high school tennis team, I went to a Catholic school, graduated with 50 people, so it was very small. And when I, when I realized that there was opportunity for me to play tennis, I just leapt into it. I had a librarian as a tennis coach, so a lot of what I know is self-taught and a little, a little bit taught by him. Because <laughs> he wasn't the most athletic person in the world, sorry. Um... But yeah, I played all four years of high school. And then after that, I kind of just became like a weekend warrior. I played with the same guy that graduated a little bit before me. And that's kind of how I got my um, base of my game together. Now I play whenever I can when it's not raining cats and dogs in Louisiana. That's when I play. So, yeah, that's my love of tennis. And that's how I fell in love with tennis. I'm glad that you asked that question. Now I can... If anybody ever asks me the question again, I can refer them to this podcast. <laughs> Let's move on to our next question. Let's see. Ooh, there's a good question. I, I did some screenshots. Do I want to go to this one so far? Do I want to do I want to switch over to that one? No, I'm, I'm going to come back to this question. I'm going to answer this question really quickly. Yep. OK, that's what I'm going to do. So. What is your favorite shot in tennis? Um, I really enjoy a two-handed backhand cross court. I really do. I really do. Like, you know, people, there's a lot of players professionally that, you know, love and say their backhand down the line is their bread and butter. But I guess because I'm a lefty and if you hit it a certain way into the court or into the deuce court, I enjoy ripping it cross court. Um, with my two-handed backhand. I enjoy that. I know it's like a tactically good thing because I don't think my forehand is bad. My forehand is probably my more aggressive shot because I play flat and a flat forehand, usually my forehand just goes through the court, but it's something about the angle I can find on a two-handed backhand when I'm moving well and when I'm playing well and it just feels good. I don't know. It 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 just feels good. And then also... On the ad side, a good old lefty slice out wide feels good. Now, I didn't say that one first because it don't always work. (laughs) Some days are better than others, but when it's working, a lefty uh, slice out wide in the ad court, especially if I'm down break point and it just works and I feel confident enough to go for it. That is when I'm just like, yep, we're feeling it. We're feeling it. And that's my favorite shot. Those are my favorite shots to hit. Somebody on Instagram, Claude the Vegan says, I was glued to the TV when Serena played Maria in the AO final Australian Open. Yes, so was I. So was I. I remember that like yesterday and I was like, woo, this is how you play tennis. (laughs) That's how you do it. That's exactly how you do it. She wasn't playing zero games like zero games were being played. Oh, Clinton, I'm glad you're in the chat. Because Clinton actually asked me, what is my favorite shot in tennis? So Clinton also asked me, 
And Clinton, I'm glad I'm I'm seriously glad you're here because I have some specific questions to your questions. You said build your perfect tennis Frankenstein. And I would like to know I like I have Okay, I think you I think you answered it here in Instagram. It says, How would you build your perfect tennis player? I.e. whose forehand, backhand, serve, etc. Perfect. Great timing. Great timing. Okay. Whose forehand wait, so should I do WTA first and then ATP? Let's do let's get ATP out of the way first. Let's get ATP out of, out of the way first. I mean, it's no secret that I love the WTA a little bit more. It's not it's no secret. I mean, the men are great. They're great. They're great. But the women are like great er er emphasis on the er. <laughs> um forehand. I th- think if I was building my perfect forehand on the men's side, I would go with Del Potro. I really enjoy his forehand. I know the obvious answer is Federer, but I want something a little bit more potent and um, powerful. Not that Federer's isn't, but Juan Martin Del Potro's forehand is powerful. Like they call him the hammer. Is that what they call him? Or is that what they call Berrettini now? Did Berrettini become the hammer now that Juan Martin Del Potro is kind of on the out and out? Kind of? I don't know. But we'll take we'll take Delpo is yeah, Delpo is the obvious answer for forehand. Yes, we'll take Delpo Delpotro for the forehand for the backhand, a two handed backhand on the men's side. I am going to go with Marat Safin. Boom. There we go. Marat Safin's two handed backhand was one of my favorites. It was easy. It was he didn't do too much as far as the take back. He could end points with it if he wanted to. It was his most consistent side. He could hit it down the line and cross court. It was flat and powerful and something to watch for sure. So, yes, Marat Safin's two handed backhand. There might be somebody else I'm missing. But if you can't tell, I like to play aggressive tennis. So the person that I'm building in my head is very aggressive. He might not be like a servant volleyer, but he's going to take very good um, swings at the at the ball. Claude the Vegan said, you have that movie trailer voice, LOL, coming to theaters. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I've heard that before. I've heard that before. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, okay. Forehand, backhand, check. Serve. Men's serve. There are some obvious answers that I'm not going to go with. Not going with John Isner. Goran Ivanisevic. I liked him because he was a lefty, and I can I can relate to that. He had an interesting windup, but he hit his spots like no other. He wasn't necessarily like he had a powerful serve. Don't get me wrong. And this is a throwback player. He won the 2001 Wimbledon title as a wild card. I'm I'm digging back into my memory bank here, but I'm pretty sure he won the 2001 Wimbledon as a wild card, and he had made a couple of Wimbledon finals before that. But I liked it. It was smooth. <laughs> it was smooth. He hit his spots. It was a little bit boring. He was a serve bot before we gave serve bots a name, but I liked it. People in the comments are saying they love Nick Kyrgios' serve. <laughs> if y- 
y'all love it, if y'all love it, then I like it. That's not how that, that saying goes. But if y'all love it, I like it. It's not my personal favorite. It's not my personal favorite. And we'll leave it at that. There's actually um, there's actually a question that somebody sent in via um, like audio. They actually sent me a question of them asking the question via like an audio channel, like an iPhone audio clip clip segment why can i not find the words for that anyway i'm gonna i'm gonna answer my feelings about nick off this instagram live and you guys just have to listen to the podcast to see how i feel about it (laughs) hey miles my name is ricky williams and i would like to know what about nick kyrgios's game makes him a dangerous opponent and what do you think he has to do to become more of a threat in the men's game. Thank you. Hey, Ricky. So I'm inserting my answer and opinion to this question that you posed while I'm doing my editing of the episode, because I think it's fantastic that you actually gave me a audio memo to insert into the podcast. So thank you for that. If you're listening, well, I'm sure you're listening because you're super supportive and I thank you and appreciate that a lot. So to answer your question, right? We've had our discussions, you and I, one-on-one, about Nick Kyrgios and my <sighs> lack of genuine appreciation for him. And I guess just to just to not cut to cut right into it, I have a little lack of respect for him just because I think that he has been given a lot of opportunities and has a lot of resources at his fingertips to really permeate his way throughout tennis and I think he's good for the sport and he hasn't really done that and I think he's sitting on a gold mine of talent that is going untapped based off of him being in his own way and that's unfortunate and it's really hard for me to root for somebody who can't see that and isn't self-aware of themselves to kind of see that they're their own problem and you know in the grand scheme of things, I think he um, he has a very tormented relationship with tennis. I, I genuinely don't think he loves the sport that much because if he was or if he did love the sport that much, I would say that he would have three more D's. He would have much more determination, much more desire and much more discipline and to answer the question you posed, those are things that he needs to become more of a feared tennis player because right now you really don't know what you're going to get any given match even within a match even in any given game any given set you don't know what you're going to get from him and a lot of that is difficult to deal with I guess to a certain degree as an opponent of Nick Kyrgios's but all of but some of that not all of it some of it does play into your hands because you know you're not going to get what is required to at least bring out the talent that Nick Kyrgios has which is effort now if I'm just looking at his talents like if I were to create or if I were to look at Nick Kyrgios's game and make him like a player in my tennis universe he would get five stars for a serve five stars for a forehand probably four or mm, yeah four stars for a backhand uh like speed and movement he would probably get three and a half and 
in power, he would definitely get five stars. Like just pace on the ball, he would get five stars. So he he has all of the makings of a very top tier tennis player. But going back to those three Ds, he doesn't have really intense desire. He doesn't have a high level of dedication and he does not have a high level of discipline. So until he gets those together, I really don't see where his trajectory is going to go upward in tennis because the guys around him, even what they lack in talent, they make up for in just intrinsic desire to want to be the best tennis players that they can be. And I feel like for Nick Kyrgios, he's a bit satisfied. I think the wins that he's had over Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, and Novak Djokovic were great, but they've also helped stall him a little bit because he feels like, well, and I, and I just listened to a interview of his he doesn't even have goals to be a tennis player for that much longer he feels like he's accomplished what he needs to and in the grand scheme of things he's won six atp titles a career high ranking of 13 if you take away his off well not even off court if you take away his on court antics where he's just completely disrespectful and tanks matches and stuff he could easily be forgotten because his achievements Although they are impressive because it's impressive for anybody to go into a sport, at least in my eyes, it's impressive to become a professional athlete and and do what it takes to be at that level. It's impressive. But in the overarching like tennis history books, his six titles and being number 13 in the world is not that impressive, especially when you put it against how much talent he universally has and everybody universally thinks he's had. He has. So I don't know. He's a. I don't want to say he's a lost cause or like he's a he's washed up because th- that's those are harsh phrases and harsh words. But when you watch an interview from the source, which is Nick Kyrgios himself saying things or alluding to retirement and not wanting to be a player that plays week in and week out. And he just he just like I said earlier, he has a really tormented relationship with the entire process of the sport. I wish him the best, but it's hard for me to really see him doing anything more than what he's already accomplished unfortunately so that's my answer Ricky (laughs) I I wish the best for Nick Kyrgios but ultimately it doesn't look like he wants the best for himself okay we did forehand backhand serve just for time purposes we'll keep it at forehand backhand serve and let's hop onto the women forehand backhand serve who would I build my favorite or my perfect tennis player women's forehand I really enjoyed seeing Anna Ivanovich's forehand in full flight. She doesn't necessarily have the greatest resume. She's, I think, I think, I think she's going to get into the Hall of Fame by like this, like the the smallest hair on her head. I think she's going to get in there because she was a world number one. She got to multiple Grand Slam finals. She won one. She was a great ambassador for the game. So I think she's done enough to get to the Hall of Fame. But her forehand, when she lined it up cross court or down the line, was a thing of beauty. And I think it was because she they used to always run like media packages about how she came to fame and where she started in her country of uh, Serbia and she said like she used to practice in an old swimming pool that they just made into a uh, like a tennis 
court and swimming pools like especially indoor ones like you you don't have just a enormous amount of space to go out wide so i think that's why she would cut off the angles so well on her forehand it's because she like growing up that's what she had to do to keep the points going i guess so if i could go back in time and watch somebody like play tennis in a makeshift tennis court that used that used to be a tennis pool or a tennis pool that used to be a swimming pool then i would love to see how they constructed their own points for sure Yeah, Ivanovich on the forehand. Backhand, 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 backhand. Oh, you know, honorable mention for forehand. You guys, you might kill me. I love Dementieva's forehand. I liked her take back. I liked the way that she was consistent off that wing. And I just enjoyed it. I I, I really miss Dementieva. It was, it, her forehand was legit. Her forehand was legit. Um, Backhand. Two-handed, because I use a two-handed why am I? There's so many options, man. There's so many options. Oh, there's this is I'm not picking her, but there's a there's a player by the name of uh, Vera Gracheva. Vera Gracheva. She's a Russian player, and I just peeped how beautiful her two-handed backhand is. I'm not picking her because she's she's she hasn't accomplished too much yet. But I'm, I'm thinking of players who have accomplished a lot and had a great two-handed backhand. You know, if I really wanted a, a solid backhand, I picked Safin for my men. I might pick Safina for my for my for my women's backhand. Her backhand was her most solid shot and it penetrated the court very very well. When I'm thinking about women's backhands, I would go I would go Safina. I think I, I I think I would win a lot of matches with that. She won a lot of matches with her backhand. Like, I mean, she never won the elusive Grand Slam title, but she did win Rome and Madrid. <laughs> She won Roman Madrid, okay? So that that matters. So Angie said she would actually pick Maria. If I was building the perfect tennis player on the women's side, I would actually choose Maria's backhand serve return or return of serve, I should say. Her return of serve, when she came, like her return of serve was always pretty good and aggressive. But when she came back from the shoulder surgery, there was a specific match, and I believe it was the match in 2012 she played against Kvitova in the Australian Open semifinals, and I was like, who taught her how to return serve like this? Like, who, like, where did the emphasis get put on it? Because it was just at your feet before you could actually finish your serve, and a lot of times it was on the backhand return. So, yeah, I would pick her as a... Um, Return of serve, actually. Forehand and back, and I would, I would pick Maria Sharapova for return of serve. Serve on the women's side, obvious. Serena. Not just because it's beautiful to watch, but the the timeliness, the, 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 the timing of the actual stroke production, like the production of her serve, is chef's kiss. You, like, Richard really did his thing. I'm pretty sure Orisina sprinkled in there, but Richard really did his thing when he constructed that serve. I mean, mm, you love to see it. You really love to see it. And then the way that it is clutch, the way that 
in her in her heyday when you when you even when she's not confident actually she could depend on her serve and place it where she wanted to the second serve it, when she's feeling confident is not as attackable as a lot of other women's second serves so you just you just can't pass it up i mean in the modern game like she's been serving aces since the 90s like how do you not pick that you have to pick it her her toss the uh, it's just uh again chef's kiss bring back serena in her heyday and her serve not that her serve has not been good because she served well in 2019 2020 2021 i don't really there's not a match that i can think of where like serena's serve got her out of trouble too much i might be wrong on that one but it's maybe because she didn't play that much in 2021 i'm pretty sure she played less than like eight tournaments we've been we've been injured sorry this is what it is but yes in her in her heyday that serve was serving and it was hitting all four corners of the box the only serve i wished that she would have like just taken a page out of venus's book was the serve in the middle of the box in the opponent's body we know venus used to hit that serve venus used to kill girls with that serve like literally they could not get out of the way fast enough to get out of that serve serena didn't really go for the body that much but if i could like whisper something in her ear i would say go for the body go for the body go for the body (laughs) so yes those that's my favorite um tennis player or building my my perfect tennis player and if i could add one more thing to it i would probably add venus's range and net skills because man i don't care what anybody says venus williams invented a swinging volley it was venus williams she invented it (laughs) it is hers she may not get them all the time because it's the way her game is set up but if you go back and do your youtube research the way she takes a ball out of the air and it's she's not always aggressive on her on her volleys it just the wingspan and the way she could just finagle her racket to get the volley out of reach for the opponent i can't wait until we get a documentary about that I'm, if I ever get a chance to like be a part of it i'm going to make sure we need shots of venus at the net <laughs> we need it we need it we deserve it actually <laughs> two questions miguel miguel's 1000 asked what is your favorite tennis rivalry i have to say that davenport and venus williams is my favorite tennis rivalry I, it it shifts depending on the wind <laughs> but when i think about my favorite things i love about tennis those two players on the women's side give me exactly what i want to see and to like break that down further you have davenport who has clean mechanics she hits the middle of her rackets or the middle of her strings almost every single time she swings the ball it sounds good she may not be the best mover but her stroke production and the way her strokes um, were linear against the court, beautiful to watch. She wasn't anybody's track star. She's not a runner. She's not a track star. But if if you gave her a ball in her strike zone, she was going to hit it cleanly, and it was usually going to be offensive. She wasn't just all out attack, but the depth that she kept on her shots made her a very offensive player. And then you have Venus, who's 
concept was the same, was the same concept to be aggressive, but she was moving from corner to corner. So mix that in with Venus, Venus getting from corner to corner and Davenport smacking every ball into the corners. I mean, what else? What else could you want? And then for a moment there, like the early 2000s, it was those two dominating, like early 2000s, 2001. They met in back-to-back Wimbledon and U.S. Open finals. Of course, I mentioned earlier the 2005 Wimbledon final was probably one of the best women's matches ever, quality-wise. It's just like every time they played, like, yeah, you guys are right. Every time they played, it was lights out. Venus didn't want to see too many balls go past her, but that was Davenport's mission is to get as many balls past Venus as she could. So that juxtaposition of amazing ball striking and amazing athleticism, just like, I don't know. I just, mm, you just can't get better than that. I would say Serena and Venus, but their rivalry, yeah. Uh, great like great if you take out the tennis aspect of it great rivalry because I couldn't imagine playing against my sister but just tennis like I'm thinking with my tennis cap on Davenport and Venus for sure oh Clinton said Serena and Azarenka I mean it's okay it's a little loud (laughs) and Azarenka has come a little too close or she's beaten Serena in some moments where I wish she hadn't just a touch too many times a touch but I do I'm Obviously, if Serena and Azarenka are playing, I'm definitely going to be sitting there watching for sure. So it's it's like a it's top five ish. Yeah, Serena Azarenka's top five. <laughs> On the men's side, can't go wrong with Rafa versus Roger. Um, like, what more can you say? Complete clash of styles. They both have tremendous respect for each other. Who else would I put into a men's rivalry? Sampras and Agassi was nice to watch, honestly. That was nice to watch. Mm, I don't know. Clearly, clearly, my WTA brain is taking over at this moment. <laughs> Momentally conscious. We don't we don't mention the Hennen versus Serena rivalry. That's something we don't mention. Cause I'm, cause I think Inan has more wins over Serena at the Grand Slams than Serena does over Inan, and I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like it. I don't like it at all. I don't like it at all. Ooh, Claude the Vegan says my favorite, my favorite historic rivalry is Serena and Maria. I am going to do a. I don't know if I'm. I don't know if I'm. My mind is turning as I'm saying this, but I don't know if I'm going to do a podcast about it specifically about this or maybe a clubhouse room but it's been talked about on my timeline today actually like as I record this people were some journalists said that like because he was alluding to the fact that because Serena's and Maria's head to two is 20 head to two head to head is 22 in favor of Serena that it's not a rivalry. And I personally would stand in front of a bus and say that it is a rivalry just because Serena won a large amount of times more than she lost. That does not necessarily mean that it's not a rivalry. Like it's a rivalry. Just it's a rivalry. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that another day. Hey, AJ. Hey, long time. No see. So yes, next question, next question, next question. This is a good one. I would I would be interested to see what you guys' answers are answers are to this. Let's see. 
What's the least favorite match you remember watching for poor quality or results wise? I can tell you a match that results wise still stings and that's Muguruza beating Venus at Wimbledon. It didn't have to happen. It didn't it didn't need to happen. It didn't it, that wasn't supposed to happen. I don't know I don't know what prayer um the Spanish Federation was praying that day to get Muguruza to beat Venus with a bagel at Wimbledon at the finals. I'm not sure, but that wasn't supposed to happen. It wasn't it wasn't bad quality. Eh, might be debatable, but I don't like thinking about that match at all. At all. At all actually. But I will say Quality wise, I remember watching this match and kind of chuckling throughout it. <laughs> not, not, not Venus versus um, Muguruza. This is a different, a different matchup. I don't know if y'all remember, but Safina versus Kuznetsova in the 2009 French Open final. Oh my gosh, that final was awful. A W F U L. It was awful. I mean. And it was like it had all the billing of being a great match because one, if you do the research, like if you really get down into both of their careers, they're very they're very familiar with each other. Both of them trained in Spain. Like they kind of grew up together. Like Kuznetsov and Safina, both Russian, and they had played in two other finals in the clay court season prior to the French Open final. Safina beat um Kuznetsova in the Rome final, I wanna say. And then Safina lost to Kuznetsova at the Stuttgart final. So you add in the fact that they know each other's games. They had just played a couple weeks prior, but that match they played at the French Open final was a clunker and it ended with a double fall from Safina. So that's why I was just like, mm, 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 mm. That wasn't the only part that was bad. It was just. You, you you could feel through the television how tight Safina was and you could also kind of feel how bad Kuznetsova felt because Safina was tight because she was expecting a battle and that's not what she got at all. So that's a little unfortunate. It was cringe. It was cringe. And I wanted better. I thought that was going to be Safina's moment to finally lift the championship trophy, but she just didn't have it that day. I think the match was like 6 Three six four something maybe maybe six three six two something like that. The double fault on match point was just awful. <laughs> it was one of the like it was the fact that it hit the leg court and like bounced all the way out to the side of the court. Oh, it was just bad. Oh man, awful match. But surprisingly, there's a lot of highlights of it on YouTube. <laughs> I guess because people watch it and laugh. I don't know. Also, I didn't watch this live, but watching it back, the 2004 French Open final. See, this is why the French Open is not my favorite. Y'all, they have way too many flops in the final. The 2004 uh, all-Russian final between Moschina and Dementieva, awful. Awful match. Awful. Great players. Awful match. It's okay, though. We all have our days. We all have, we all have our days. <laughs> Let's see. Okay, let's answer one of these questions from Instagram Live. To do, to do. Yes, this is a good question. Thank you, John. Do you plan to try to get a media credential? Yes, I do. I actually just got off of the phone or off of a of a, um a Google Meetup 
and meeting with Angie, who supports the podcast a lot. And I appreciate it, Angie. And Angie was giving me some insight into how to go about getting media credentials at various tournaments. And yes, I'm going to try. I guess I should put this in the atmosphere. I'm going to try to get a media credential to the Dallas Open. The men are having a ATP 250 tournament in February. I want to say it is. It's replacing the New York Open that that took place in um, like out upstate, outer outskirt, not Manhattan area, not like New York or U.S. Open area. So they're moving down to Dallas, and I'm only like a six or seven hour drive away from Dallas. So I would love to get a media credential at any level and just get some access to the players and get some access to the tournament. It'll it'll be its first year, so I'm interested to see how things are you know, are rolling and just getting a, actually getting a media credential at, at almost any tournament next year is a goal. So yes, I do plan on trying to go um, and get media credentials, maybe possibly Charleston. Charleston isn't necessarily a drive for me, but it's not a long flight. And I love that tournament visually. I've watched it like every single year since I've been a tennis fan and I would love to get media credentials at that too, but we'll see. I mean, I am a blossoming podcast. It's not like I have a whole team behind me. I would love to have that one day. One day I probably will, but right now I'm just taking things in stride and yeah, a media credential would be great. It's in the it's in the works. Don't worry. We're going to try to get some one on one interviews with players on site and, you know, turn it into a podcast episode and let you guys listen to it for sure. That's the goal. All right. Let's ask another question. So fantastic tennis pod. Shout out to fantastic tennis. One of my favorite tennis podcasts. If you're listening, John. Hi. Shout out to all the gypsies. That's an insider. (laughs) I love Fanny. That's also an insider as well. (laughs) But Fantastic Tennis Pod asked, what were you most surprised about this year? Maybe besides Emma. He's talking about Emma Raducanu. Um, Let's keep it on the WTA side. I might answer this on the ATP side as well. What was I most surprised about? I think results-wise, it's pretty easy to go... Um, to Krychikova, did not see that coming. Like I saw it coming once the, I saw better results coming once the results started coming. Like I know she got to the finals of Dubai, and I was like, for some reason, it doesn't feel like a fluke. And then she won Strasbourg the week before the French Open, and then at the French Open, those entire two weeks, I was just like, what is going on? <laughs> like I like I knew you were coming, but I thought you were coming to be like a solid top 20 player, not a Grand Slam champion. But she's also shocked the hell out of me by getting to she won another final after that. She won her home turn home country tournament in Prague. After the French Open, she got to the fourth round of Wimbledon. She got to the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open amidst some controversy. Um, you know, I have to, I'm not. Never mind. I'm not going to say that. I had a, I had a dream that involved Krychikova, and it was really funny. <laughs> I'm going to keep that to myself. I promise you. If you if you want to know about the dream I had with Krychikova, just DM me because it's not appropriate, but it's funny. That's for sure. Um, so yeah, she surprised the hell out of me as far as the win she's gotten, the results she's gotten. Who else has surprised me? 
I'm surprised in a good way. I'm I'm pleasantly surprised that Anna Kanyu, um, a former top 20 player, she's gotten through qualifying basically almost every single time she's tried to um, this year on the WTA tour. And I'm happy for her. She is powerful. She's thick. I, 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 I have a soft spot for, for girls that are a little thicker on the tour. I just do. Call it what you want. I don't care. Um, um, but I was, I'm surprised that she's been able to remain healthy and get through qualifying as many times as she has, which I appreciate. So who else has surprised me? Who surprised you guys? If you're in the Instagram comments, let me know who you're surprised. Let's, let me, let's do some scrolling. Let's do some scrolling. Paula Badosa. Paula Badosa is a surprise. I didn't. She wasn't necessarily on my radar at all, but I'm glad that she is. I hope that she continues moving in the right direction and has a great 2021 season. That would be that would be really really good. Um, I think she's good for the game. I actually watched her at the U.S. Open this year when I went, and she is going to have a lot of crowd support. Spaniards are gonna love her and she's just good at tennis. Like she she just she she has something. I hope she keep keeps building on the something, but she has something for sure. She has it. For sure, for sure. Okay. I am going to switch over to my email questions really quickly and see what you guys got for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, this is a good segue because this is a really good question right here. Hold on. Let's see. So Cameron asked, hi, Miles. I saw you recently fulfilled your goal of attending the U.S. Open. How was the experience? Your favorite match slash moment. Any advice for others who want to attend? Signed a non-tennis watcher. (laughs) Thank you, Cameron. And... I loved it. I was talking to Angie um, on our chat about like getting more information about media credentials and she doesn't necessarily agree, but it's okay. Everybody's everybody's entitled to their own opinion. I loved it for somebody that has never been to a Grand Slam before, had never been to the U.S. Open and only watched it on television every year. I really, really, really enjoyed the U.S. Open. I wish I could have stayed longer. Two days is is not enough. I really enjoy the fact that like when you get to the early rounds of a tournament, especially that tournament, I kind of felt this way. Well, no, I felt this way when I went to Indian Wells, but like U.S. Open was on steroids. Like there were matches from 11 a.m. to 11 (laughs) p.m. And if you got there early enough, you got to see all of them. If you had the right tickets, well, a ticket to, if you buy a ticket to Arthur Ashe, it gets you into basically everywhere else general admission-wise. So all the other courts are fair game. If you buy a day session, you can stay for the night session. I think that's how that works. Don't quote me. I have to ask Brian. Brian was the one that explained that to me. And some of it didn't stick because <laughs> it was my first time and I was just too excited. But it was just great to be around other people. I got to meet a lot of you guys. You got like listeners. I was walking around with my hat on. So people were asking me, like, what does that mean? I would tell them about the podcast. I gave people some buttons. Um, buttons are also um 
buttons and hats are something I'm working on as far as merchandise for the podcast. So you guys bear with me. I want I want it to be as close to perfect as they can be before I start selling them. And you guys can walk around and say, hey, I listened to Missing the Punk with Miles David. What do you do with your life? I'm a fan. Why aren't you a fan? <laughs> um, I keep on saying, um, I got to stop saying that. The experience was just overall really great. I will take it with me for all of my days and I can't wait to go back next year. Shout out to Shaq. Shaq was there with me. Shaq made it enjoyable as he makes most things. Um, <laughs> and my favorite match moment, literally y'all, I kid you not. When we got in, when me, Brian and Shaq got through the gates, like they asked for our proof of vaccination, they asked for our tickets. They did the whole like scanning of like, you know, metal and stuff like that. As soon as I check my scoring app, shout out to Tennis Live. If you have, if you don't have that scoring app, it's called TNNS Live um, or you can go to their Twitter, download tennis. Really great app. But as soon as I saw that Coco Golf was down a set and she was playing on Armstrong, I said, let's get to Armstrong. <laughs> she was playing. Um, she was playing Magdalenette of Poland and Magdalenette has had a sneaky good season. So I was like, "Uh oh, she was I think she had dropped the first set. Yes, she had dropped the first set and I literally looked over to Shaq and Brian and was like, let's go support Coco. So I think that'll be my favorite match because I feel like us, particularly me, I'm gonna I'm gonna take some credit here. I love you, Brian and Shaq, but I'm gonna take some I'm gonna take some credit here. <laughs> because it was my idea. It was my idea. But because we walked into that Armstrong Stadium, she won that match. And I'm very proud of that. It normally does not happen that way, that when I watch a player either either via television or go to a tennis match, that they start winning. I don't know if I'm bad karma or bad juju, but in that moment, I felt like all of my all of my wrongs had been righted and Coco Golf felt and heard me cheer her on to victory. So, yes, that was my favorite match and moment. Um, any advice to others that may want to attend? Yes, do what I do, or uh, do what I did, or do it like a Joe B day, whichever one you want to do. <laughs> um, go early. Like, yes, like you may get more bang for your buck. I guess if you, I mean, actually, I take that back. You're gonna get more bang for your buck if you go on the opening couple of days at the latest, maybe like the middle weekend, Labor Day weekend, but it is it's super packed then. So if you're not a people person, like I mean, I like people, but sometimes too many people, I just, I, I don't know, I feel claustrophobic. But go and watch as many matches as you can. Don't be that person that spends a whole bunch of money for like quarterfinal, semifinal, and finals tickets. Not that those matches can't be amazing. Sometimes they really are because you're either going to get a really top player that is in top form or you're going to get a really good Cinderella story. And both of those things are kind of easy to root for. But if you go and you're a true tennis fan and you just want to see tennis played at all different kind of angles and see who's like who's in the crowd and see what kind of crowd reaction certain players get go during the first couple of days, like second, first, second and third round for sure. There's going to be matches on every single one of the courts. If you go like during third round, I, I believe, I think you can get some doubles in as well. If you like really, if you really watch love and doubles. So yeah, 
go early rather than later that would be my that would be my advice to anybody that is not going especially if you aren't really into tennis i feel like if you go and get like all of the tennis overload you, you you're probably going to leave there like oh my god let me go pick up a racket so yes it's a it's a fun event and everybody should experience it for sure <laughs> Shaq, i see your question Shaq, and i'm not answering it i'm not answering it I will answer Angie's though on Instagram. Angie asked, who would be your dream first interviewee besides Serena? I've thought about this and I I think I want to interview a young up and coming American player. And it's on the top of my head, there's a couple actually. So there's four. <laughs> they're all they're all women of color and they're all like twenty-one or younger. And I just want to see what their background is, what their goals are. And I'm talking about Haley Baptiste, Whitney Osigway, Robin Montgomery, and and it's Katrina Scott. Boom. There we go. Katrina Scott. Now I was I gotta remember that. Katrina Scott, Whitney Osigway, Haley Baptiste, and Robin Montgomery are all players I would love to get some one-on-one time with on the podcast. I feel like, you know. This isn't a bad thing. I feel like they're on the cusp. Like they don't necessarily have 17,000. I'm sure they I'm sure they actually do have quite busy schedules, but not like like what you said, Serena busy. They're not being pulled 17,000 ways, maybe just 17 ways. So I feel like getting them in a one on one situation, whether it was, you know, Zoom or maybe if I get a credential and can talk to them in person. I love to see what their goals are, what their background to how they how like how they found tennis and found the love for it, what keeps them motivated, um, especially since it's hard to go from country to country, city to city, hotel to hotel and like live this life. I just would I would love to sit down with them and kind of, you know, see what's going on and 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 hopefully give them some good energy, some good positive energy so they can they can keep progressing and being good tennis players. Because I have I have hope in all four of them. Hope and faith in all four. So I sorry I, I should have just said one, but you know, the more the merrier. <laughs> okay. Let's go back to my email and see what's popping there. Sorry, y'all. That pressure song by Ari Linux is stuck in my head. Stuck, stuck, stuck. Okay, good question. This question comes from Chris Fisher on Twitter. He asks, who are the players that you think may have great seasons next year? So besides the four young women I just mentioned, I am hoping that Marta Kostyuk has a great season. I really like her. She's a young she's a young player from Ukraine. I've picked her a couple times to go deep at Grand Slams. And she's she's done her thing. She's gotten like third or fourth rounds, which is more than what you can ask for as like a 19-year-old to get to the third or fourth round of Grand Slams. All that is is just building upon building on experiences. Um let's see, who else? I really want Maria Sakari. Not that she hasn't had a great season this year, but I want her to take what she built upon this season, getting to two Grand Slam finals, the semi, excuse me, yikes, two Grand Slam semifinals. She got to the semifinals of the French and she got to the semifinals of the US Open. I really want to see how she 
improves because I think she has all the tools. I just want her to believe in the fact that she has all the tools. So why do I say tools like that? Tools, tools. <laughs> I'm promise you I'm not drunk. It's just me talking. Um, yeah, Maria Sakari. I want to see her have a great season. Who else? I was going to say Osaka, but that's kind of... I just want Osaka to be better mentally and emotionally. I want to see her come back and be focused and stable and not have this like cloud of uncertainty around her because I feel like she can do it, if that makes any sense. Like I'm in her camp and I want to see her happy and smiling and being like the funny, awkward... Haitian Japanese black girl that we know her to be and not the one that looks unsafe and unsure of herself on the tennis court because I feel like on the tennis court is where she actually gets a lot of her confidence I want to see that again I think she can give us another I would love to see her maybe if she doesn't well this is highly unlikely but maybe if she doesn't win any um, hardcore tournaments and she gives us a clay or a grass tournament automatic great season because she needs some some motivation and some confidence on those natural surfaces so yes um <laughs> clinton clinton get out of the live <laughs> get out of the live please but yes i want osaka to have a really good season well i guess the question was who i think may have great seasons i'm not sure about osaka i think i think marta kostik may have a great season i think maria sakari may have a great season i think sabalenka is going to have a great season next year because she's gotten those those like that monkey off of her back where she couldn't really get and perform at the grand slam level would not be surprised at all if she picks up a grand slam title next season just because the the women's side is so open and and that's enough on the women's side i feel like i've best the women's side is all i talk about i have to show my i have to flex my 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 atp card on the men's side i really want to see lorenzo musetti have a good season he's a youngster i hope and pray and fingers crossed and he's had a great season by my by my standards and I think by his standards I think Felix would say he's had a great season yes I know the age old story at this point that he has not lifted a title we still have time in this season of 2021 for him to lift a title if it doesn't happen this season I think knock on wood it is going to happen next season I think he's going to improve upon the quarterfinal and semifinal runs if not match them if not improve upon them he will match them and hopefully he takes it up a notch and makes himself a consistent top eight player I want the same for Shapovalov I really want I want greatness of both of those guys uh, I think they have it in them I think they're going to have great seasons next year especially if what I think happens what, what I think is going to happen happens and that is the players that watch and see Medvedev or watched and saw Medvedev beat Djokovic get some confidence from that and know that it is possible to beat him in straight sets no less at a Grand Slam event. It's not impossible. He's not a machine. He is in some ways, but he's literally not a machine and he can be beaten. I, I want to see these guys come 
with all of the tools that I see in their repertoire and use it on the biggest stages and just ball out, man. I don't, I, I just want to see it. I'm, I, I'm not necessarily tired of the big three, but I, I'm ready, not tired of them, but I'm ready for something else. I'm ready for a new era of men's tennis for all the names I can come up with and just pick out of a hat on the women's side. I want to be able to do that on the men's side, not necessarily like have quote unquote, like fluke winners on the men's side because sometimes that word fluke is thrown around on the women's side and I hate that but on the men's side I would like to see more variety and just see new champions like we saw with Medvedev at the US Open we saw last year with Dominic Team. oh Dominic Team is somebody else who I think after taking rest and like really taking time off I think he's going to have a good season he's not old he's not like washed up yet I think Dominic team is going to have a good season. He may even be challenging for the French Open. Oh, some other names on the men's side. Casper Ruud. I want to see Casper Ruud have a really good season. I want to see Carlos Alcaraz have a good season. I think all of those names that I'm mentioning could have breakthrough seasons. Maybe not next, if not next season, the season after that. There's just so much that I see in tennis that I just want to like see come to fruition. I feel like men's and women's tennis in some respects are like flowers right now ready to bloom like in the next couple of seasons we are going to be watching some magnificent stuff i hope i hope and pray and i have faith that we're going to be watching some magnificent stuff so (laughs) i'm laughing because i already knew i was going to answer this question on the podcast dje dubois asked Here's my question for the podcast. Miles, as a left-handed tennis player, I'm sure you're aware that historically lefties are believed to have an edge on the tennis court. From Rod Laver, Jimmy Connors, Tanavratilova, McEnroe, and the 20-time slam champ, the 20-time slam champion Rafael Nadal. However, this year with Nadal out of the U.S. Open with injury, the last multi-slam left-handed major champion in the draw was Germany's Angelique Kerber. At 33, what do you think it will take for the German to win another major? And what similarities do you find between her game and your own? (laughs) First of all, for, for reasons that I know, that is a very, very, very petty question. And... I don't see that many similarities between her and I's game, like or her game and I. I don't there. There aren't that many. I have to look at this question again and just read it again and see. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Me and Kerber, I don't get that low for my shots. Maybe I should. Um, I don't arm my serve in like that. Maybe I should. Maybe if that's what Grand if that's what Grand Slam champions do, then sure. If they arm their serves in and maybe I should arm my serve in. Um, my forehand take back doesn't look like that. So, yeah, there's really not, besides the fact that we both swing our racket from the left hand, there's not many similarities that we have between our own games, nor do I call players drama queens at the handshake. So, we, we do hit the ball pretty flat. Yes, we do hit the ball pretty flat from what, from what I can, from what I can gather. We, we do have that in common. For the first part of that question, what do I think it'll take for the German to win another major? Listen, <laughs> I am not rooting for that. <laughs> 
I am personally not rooting for Angelique Kerber to win not near other Grand Slam. She is a first, maybe second, possibly third, ballot Hall of Famer. She's going to get there eventually. She's been a year in world number one. She's had an amazing career. She's not my cup of tea, and that is okay with me, okay? Um, if she wants to, or if she can win another major it'll probably be at one of the majors she's already won i don't foresee her winning the french open because she doesn't really get along with the clay like that it'll take her like i I feel like she gets on a bicycle like literally like take this literally and figuratively when she plays tennis it's almost like a long distance bicycle run and all she does is try to outlast her opponent and get to the finish line first. But she does it simultaneously. Like she outlasts them, but she also gets there first. And she does a combination of that. And that is what makes her a difficult opponent. So she's going to have to have a really decent draw and not miss balls. And like annoy players to no end with how many balls she is bringing back into the court. That's the only way I can see her taking another Grand Slam title at the U.S. Open or possibly the Australian Open. I have no idea how she won Wimbledon. Did not foresee that happening for her in her career. And I'm going to exit this question before I shade Kerber even more. Sorry, I'm just I'm just, I'm just sorry. Listen. I've I've given her her flowers, but she is not my my favorite vase of flowers. Okay, and that's that. I'm a I'm entitled to that opinion. Okay. <laughs> um. Okay. Back to the email. Back to the email. Oh no. Let's do let's do Instagram question for Shaq because Shaq clearly wants to be seen today, and you guys can definitely interact with this question as well. Shaq asked. Who would be your dream WTA top 10? New girls only, no Williams sisters. So off the top of my head, let's do, let's start from 10 and work our way up. So 10, I would want Annette Contevit. I like her. Don't care. Don't care at all. <laughs> I like Annette Contevit. Um, she hits the ball well. She's from Estonia. I like the Estonian flag. I like her. She's cute. I just I I I don't know what else to say besides I like Annette Contevit. Um, so num- that's number ten. Number nine. Number nine. Number nine. Let's throw Sophia Kennan in there. Let's throw Kennan in in the mix. Let's give Kennan some shine because I feel like she has the type of game that I would want to see in my top ten because she's so different. She doesn't just blast the ball. I think her anticipation reminds me a touch of Martina Hingis. So let's go with Sophia Kennan. I think she's going to find her way back to get to like a number 10, number nine in the world. Actually, let me go to the WTA's website right quick and just make sure I'm not picking anybody that's just completely doing wrong things. <laughs> um, Annette Contevit. Sophia Kennan, Alina Rabakina. I like Rabakina's serve a lot. I like the way she produces it. I like her ground strokes. I think she goes out there and handles her business. So Alina Rabakina is going to be my number eight. Number seven, 
let's put Maria Sakari at number seven. She reminds me so much of Moresmo. I want her to have like actual belief in her game because sometimes you can kind of see in her eyes that she's like, am I this good? Am I this good? Shaq, I need you to find a corner. <laughs> but yes, I want Sakari as number seven. Number six, number six, number six. I am going to go with Bianca Andreescu. Bianca Andreescu has all the tools to be a number six player in the world, if not higher. I think what would keep her outside of the top five and what's kept out of the top five for me in this list is injuries, but I want to see her consistently in the top 10 again because she has game. And personally, I feel like I was part of the reason that she won Indian Wells because I went to her third or fourth round match where she beat Stephanie Vogelay. And I was also at the second round or first round match was the first round where Emiratu Kanu beat Stephanie Vogelay? Me and Shaq, Shaq and I were there. And it's not a coincidence to me that when I go to a tennis tournament and that young woman plays Stephanie Vogelay, that they win their entire championship. So, yes, it was me and Stephanie Vogelay. <laughs> where am I at? Did I say six? Yes. Okay. So, number five, Iga Swiatek. Love Iga. I think Iga is going to be our next clay court dominator. I think, I hope, uh, fingers crossed, I definitely want to see Iga Swiatek back in a Grand Slam final. She's done amazing for herself. She's backed up her French Open final, and, and it's not a fluke. She's made the fourth round of every, fourth round or better, actually of every Grand Slam she's played this season. I like her demeanor. I think she really, really wants it. And she's a she's a cool chick to kind of just root for. She's she's soft but not um she's soft spoken but not meek. And I just enjoy it. I I enjoy Sweatek. And go Poland. Go Poland. Who else? That was five. Four. Sabalenka. Sabalenka, Big Sab, <laughs> the Lion. I enjoy her game. I do. I just enjoy it. I, uh, I mean, I can see how it's annoying to some people. I really, really can because of the constant grunts. But Sabalenka, I think that's four. Three. Let's go with Coco Golf. I think Coco Golf has what it takes to be a top three player. I think she does. I I believe she does. Come on, Coco Golf. If I'm, this is this is all like this is all a um, you know dream, but yes, I think she can get further than top three. But as of right now, I see her in my top three for sure. So go, Coco Golf. The athleticism at 17 years old, it only can get better from here. So I really want to. I really want her to stay healthy. I I pray that over her life that she remains healthy and that she keeps on coming and keeps an interest in tennis and just, you know, just keeps coming up these rankings. So, yeah, my my number three is Coco Golf. Let's see who I would put at number two. Mm. Can I say Diana Yastrzemska? I, I'm I'm joking, but I actually really, really, really do like Yastrzemska's game. I don't like her gamesmanship, but I do like her game, and I think she has good upside. I really do think she has good upside. Um, I'm joking. I'm not putting her as number two. 
I'm going to put let's put Ash Barty number two. Let's just put Ash Barty number two. I know she's already a two time Grand Slam champion, but I like the fact that she goes about her business. She's relatable. She's not too. I wish she was a tad bit more marketable, I guess, if I could, like, you know, have it my way. She'd be a little bit more marketable. But let's go with Ash Barty number two and then number one, Naomi Osaka. I think Osaka is going to be great. She already is great for the game, but I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, when she figures out that she is not as bad on clay and grass as she thinks she is, watch out. World number one again. Osaka is going to be world number one again. She's going to win Wimbledon, and she may possibly win the French Open. She has it. She just has it. I think she's going through a wobble right now, and everybody in every facet of the world goes through a wobble. I'm allowing her grace to go through her wobble, but I definitely think Osaka can can win. At, she's won four Grand Slams. I think she can win four more easily. She can do it. There's a there's a, a spark to her shots that the other girls just do not have, especially on a hard court. And when she figures out how to get it on a on a grass court, especially with her serve, when her serve is working. Yeah. Mm hmm. I mean, this this is this is just my dream. This is just my dream. So Saka's my number one. Did I, I? I think I said all ten. Yeah, I think I said all ten. I have, I'm I'm not gonna go back and repeat them because I'll mix them up. But um, and there's also like threats to the number one, like the, the top ten uh, rankings. Emirata Kanu is obviously a threat. Layla Fernandez is a threat. Um, Anj Jabor I think is a threat. I think look out for Anj Jabor next season. So yeah. Kasakina, Daria Kasakina, Carolina Muhova, Paula Badosa. It's it's just the the name the the names in the list is long. Like the top forty in women's tennis right now, would not be surprised if at least thirty five of the top forty win a Grand Slam if they haven't won a Grand Slam already. For sure. It's 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 that deep for me. It's that deep for sure. So good question, Shaq. Good question. Okay. So in the interest of time, I'm just going to go back to my inbox and ask maybe one more question or, or answer one more question. And we're going to wrap this up. Okay. Um, let's see. <laughs> okay. Actually, I have a couple more questions. I can't, I can't leave it like that. So... Just because this is a Serena and Venus Stan account, Tobias, and I have to answer Tobias's question because Tobias is a great supporter of the podcast. What is your favorite Serena match and what is my favorite Venus match? My favorite Venus match off the top of my head is Venus's 2007 U.S. Open quarterfinal that she played against Yelena Yankovic. I remember watching that match live on USA and living and dying with every point. Venus had just won Wimbledon and she won that Wimbledon as a low seed, like outside the top 20 seeds. And she wasn't even supposed to be seated that high. And she came into U.S. Open off of that confidence. And I just was like, Venus, we can do this. We can do this. We can do this. And I knew that Yankovic was going to be a stern test. And we got through that test. It was a wonderful three setter. They played a tie break in the third set. And Venus squeaked it out, and I just was so happy. And that was also the debut of Eleven by Venus. So, yeah, that's my favorite match 
from Venus Williams. Um, I could watch that match all the time and be happy because Venus found a way to beat Yankovic. And Yankovic posed a lot of problems for Venus because she didn't miss balls. She was a great mover. She got all the balls back with some interest. And it just bothered Venus. And Venus got, got Venus was tough as nails that night. I, I remember that. A great match. Um, my favorite Serena match. Oof, this is tough. This is super tough. Ooh. I actually want to say, yeah, okay, I got it. The Serena match that I love the most that I can rewatch is her match in the quarterfinals of the Australian Open against Azarenka. <laughs> and I'm laughing because she had no business winning that match whatsoever. She actually had no business winning that tournament because she was strapped up like a mummy from the beginning. But... She was down for love in the final set and oh no, was she down for love in the final set or was she down for love in the second set and came back to it? Let's let's quickly fact check that, Miles. Let's just fact check that because we deserve that. Serena Azarenka head to head. Come on, give me my information. See, that goes that thing. Yes, Serena was down for love in the second set <laughs> and came back to winning in a tie break and won the second set or the third set 6-2. The, sco- the match the, the match score was 4-6, 7-6, No, I, I still don't know how Azarenka lost that match and Serena won that match because Serena was literally out the door. Like I'm, I think Serena may have, I don't, I don't know if that, if that match happened after she wrote her book on the line. And I think it did, but either way, <laughs> I remember being like, I remember being like so confused that Azarenka was beating us the way that she was. But I also remember being so confused that Serena actually came back. And I'm like, how did I watch this match live? How was I able to be privy to this greatness? And she went on to win the whole tournament. Legends only. Legends only. Only legends. Only legends. Mm, 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 mm. What a time. What a time. Great question, Tobias. Great question. I love both of those matches. Okay, two more questions, two more questions. This one has to do with um, Serena and Venus as well. And then we're going to end on a funny one. Ty from When Ty Talks asks, at their best, who was more impressive on grass, Venus or Serena? When I, my first reaction to that question is Venus, just because Venus had a way of making grass court tennis look Beautiful. It is. Grass court tennis is beautiful, but she had a way of making it look beautiful to the 10th power. I promise you like back. If you go back and watch the 2000, 2001 championships that she both won back to back years, amazing court coverage. Obviously, obviously 2005, that semifinal where she beat Sharapova. The final where she beat Davenport, amazing grass court tennis. She just like she just came on the grass court and knew what to do and knew how to finish off points. A little disappointed that Serena ultimately has more grass court or has more Wimbledon titles than Venus. But my answer to that question is who's more impressive? Not necessarily the best, but who's more impressive on grass? It would be Venus for sure. 
it's just you have you guess I, I I wish that if I had a if I had a if I had a time machine I would go back and like literally sit front and center for all of the matches that Venus played on center court at Wimbledon I can just imagine how wonderful that must have felt and just shout out to the Williams household for having that many Wimbledon championships between those two Serena's good at Wimbledon but most impressive like you walk away from the match like wow what an athlete Venus Ebony Star Williams for sure she got that one okay Almost done. Last question. And I could not I could not not answer this question from Karima. Karima is super supportive to the podcast. And of course, I have to give her a shout out. Karima asked, my question is related to the rules for disqualification with the latest that happened with your favorite. She's joking with your favorite tennis Sangren. <laughs> from the looks of the video, he clearly didn't mean to do it. She's referring to a moment that uh, Tennis Sangren hit a line judge with a ball. It was an instant reaction by getting hit in the nether region. I've heard it really does hurt. (laughs) Do we think that the rule as it stands should be tweaked a bit? Some might say they shouldn't do DQs or disqualifications for something like that. You get what I'm saying? Thanks, Karima. I get what you're saying, Karima. I personally would have disqualified Tennis Sanger because Tennis Sanger is not my cup of tea. And if he's not my cup of tea, then he's just not my cup of tea. <laughs> it just is what it is. But um, I do, I do think tennis is a little stuck sometimes in becoming more modern and be, and keeping the tradition I don't think if you unintentionally hit somebody on a court and the person that you hit can go about their business I'm not I'm not I'm not necessarily um comparing this incident to the incident where Djokovic hit a line person in the throat at that moment he should have been disqualified because he caused grave danger and discomfort to somebody and in real life like outside of tennis he would have been there would have been sanctions for his actions because i personally would have wanted to fight him if he hit a tennis ball in my throat so that's how i'm using that's how i'm using my judgment if i want to fight you after or if i if i'm going to have any kind of ill will towards you after you do something to me on a tennis court then yes you should be disqualified so he should have been disqualified for that moment moment Djokovic should have tennis sangren although i don't like him it looked like he hit a ball in frustration because he was hit by a ball in his man region. And I know that that is not comfortable. So I don't know if he should have been disqualified, especially because the like the line umpire didn't nothing. Nothing was wrong with them after they hit the. Nothing was wrong with them. Not like I don't from the video. The video is not necessarily the clearest in comparison to a high profile qualification or a high profile disqualification like Novak Djokovic. But it didn't seem like all hell broke loose in that moment. So I don't know if he should have been disqualified. Again, he's not my favorite, so I probably would have been petty and disqualified him anyway. But <laughs> if I'm if I'm if my petty hat is not on, I'm just being like a and I'm serious. 
then I probably wouldn't disqualify him. It, it just depends on how the person is affected. So yes, the rules could be tweaked to kind of add that clause. Like if you cause grave bodily harm to somebody via your racket, via you hitting a ball with your racket, via you throwing your bag around, if somebody... If somebody drops to the floor based off of your actions, boom, disqualified. Or if you hit a chair empire, if, if you cause somebody harm, you should be disqualified because tennis isn't a physical contact sport. But if you just graze somebody on the shoulder or your ball hits somebody in the leg and they're fine and we can all go on about our lives, then there's no need to disqualify somebody because for what? Like for what? There's no need. No need at all. So let me check these Instagram questions one more time before I log out of here because we've been at it for a while. And <laughs> do I think Serena will another slam? I hope so. I pray so. What's your favorite Serena wig? I'm not answering that, although I did appreciate her hair at the 2020 French Open that was played in October, it was like the blonde twist braid look. Oh, she looks so pretty. She looks so good. Um, Yeah, I think that's it, y'all. This has been a fun. Let me see how long I've been recording. It'll tell me this has been a fun hour and a half. <laughs> and I really, really appreciate you guys, as always, for rocking with me and rocking with the podcast and being on Instagram live with me while I drink what's in my cup. <laughs> I sincerely this is since this is like the last part of the podcast anniversary series before I, I'm not going to get too emotional but I appreciate every listen every download I appreciate every share I appreciate every person that has has donated to the cause if you haven't donated to the cause um I take donations for the growth of the podcast via Cash App and Venmo. The link is in my Instagram bio and it is and it will be in my podcast description bio for this episode. And I just I, I'm humbled by the community that I'm building based in our love for tennis. I appreciate all of the interaction I get. I just I, I when I set out to when I when I set out to start a podcast, I literally was like miles people tell you you have a nice voice you love tennis let's start something with it um it wasn't it wasn't to gain a whole bunch of followers it wasn't necessarily to make money it was just to create a lane for me to talk about something that i'm passionate about and i'm happy that me talking about something i'm passionate about has created a community of people that want to talk to me and they want to give me feedback and send questions and answer questions and put up with all of my foolishness because I can be foolish at times and petty. <laughs> so on that note, I appreciate and love you guys a hell of a lot. Hope you enjoy the rest of your week and I will talk to you guys soon. If you don't, if you're somehow new to this whole show, make sure you follow Missing Point Pod and uh, follow each other in the Instagram live. This is a great community that we're building and I only want it to grow. And hopefully when we do our podcast anniversary special next year, it is bigger, better and maybe I'm on YouTube when I do it. Because YouTube is where it's at. Allegedly. That's what they say. That's what the girls say. 
All right, y'all. I will sign out and I will talk to y'all later. Take care.